Buckle up, it's the Insurance Dudes Podcast. Boom! Woo! All right. Yeah. Oh, look at that. Bell. Look at these sound effects. Look at these sound effects. I could do a little... <laughs> Nothing but top notch. Oh, almost had it. So awesome. There we go. There wow. we go. Yeah, we got all the all the bells and whistles. Jeff Lerner, welcome to the Insurance Dudes Podcast. Awesome to have you here. I'm so grateful to be here, guys. I'm uh, yeah. loving the life I live and living the life I love right where I am. That's what you're supposed love to do. Love it. Huh? Woo. Love it. Love it. And you aren't an insurance dude, right? Um, no, although I'm pretty well insured. I think I'm worth more dead than alive, but I'm not an insurance <laughs> dude per se. <laughs> that's well, that's good. So you, yeah, you got, you got the stuff in place. So before we jump into anything, Craig, I think you have a rapid round right now. Oh, I do. Uh, a round of <laughs> speed breakers. So Ooh. don't think just answer. And okay. let's do this. Have you ever had a mullet? No. First crush. Yes. Most embarrassing thing your mom ever caught you doing. Masturbating in the shower. <laughs> We've been waiting for that. <laughs> Fastest speed ever dri- ever driven. About 170. That nice. Is, that is the highest the speed we've had. One. Yeah. Favorite is. cereal? Okay. Uh, Lucky Charms. How many kids? Nice. Four. Have you made cry? <laughs> Four. <laughs> there you go. Count Chocula or Count Dracula? Chocula. Fastest mile? I got down in the fives. Something. Ooh, wow. That might be the yeah. fastest mile also. You're just breaking records on speed breakers. Wow. Favorite right. flavor? <laughs> Chocolate. That's correct. Dogs yep. or cats? <laughs> Dogs. Also correct. Tacos or burritos? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll rock a good burrito. It's got to be there. thick, though. Big like, one, yeah. And one. ironically, after what we were just talking about, Trump or Biden, I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that question. So <laughs> let's 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 dive in here. Um, and we do start with the with the inaugural. What was your first concert? You said you're you're old, which I just I'm probably well, older. But my dad took me to a Tom Petty concert when I was seven years old. Oh, oh man, yeah. I gotta even yeah. throw this in there for that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Love it. Yeah. So, Jeff, take us from Tom Petty to to pandemic. <laughs> Where Tom Petty, Petty to total to pand- pandemonium. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. so what what got you to what you're doing now? Starting back from Petty. Yeah, well, it's it's ironic you asked about a concert and about music cuz that that was really the first I would say from the time I was old enough to have like a mature thinking life, it was music, music, music um, for my. So in mi- mi- middle school, I got obsessed with Guns N' Roses and Metallica, and I had to learn nice. every note that Kirk Hammett or uh, Slash ever played. So I bought, you know, I just was obsessed and Jimmy Page and like I just got yeah. obsessed with like the rock gods of guitar. And I was an electric guitar nerd in middle school. And I found out uh, I'm actually a pretty good musician. Like I I have an aptitude for that, which which was really nice because when I was 16 years old and I tried that uh, that thing that most people do a lot of, which is called getting a job. I uh, I, between my sophomore and junior years, I figured out it took me all of well, it took me all of about three minutes to know I didn't like it. 
It took me all three weeks to get myself fired because I was so hard to, to manage. And, uh, that was it. That was it. I was like, I'm, I'm never going to get a job. I don't know what my life is going to look like. I'll join the peace corps. I'll join the military. I'll live under a bridge. I'll deal. <laughs> I literally, if somebody said, get a job or deal drugs, boom, give me the smack, man. I'm your dealer. <laughs> and, uh, I just, you know, I figured, I figured, you know, um, jobs are sort of a different type of, of unfulfilling comfort drug. So like, what would even be the difference? Right. But I, I don't know. I, I sound, I sound so extreme when I say stuff like that. It's just, it's my own wiring. I can't help it. I totally get it for other people. And I employ a lot of people right now. So I'm grateful yeah. that it, everyone's not like me, but, um, so I became a musician. It was a very practical thing. It was like, I'm 16. I gotta do something. I gotta get good enough at something that I can go get money in the world but still have as close to total freedom as I can get. And I figured as a musician, I can work in hotels. I can work in cruise ships. I can, I can work, you know, if I, what do you want to eat tonight? I want a steak. I want an expensive, nice porterhouse. And I can't afford it. But I'll bet if I go get a gig at a nice steakhouse, they'll let me have some dinner too, which they, I now know they usually do. Um, <laughs> so I just thought being a musician was just seemed like it would be the answer to a, a problem for me. So I drop. I actually dropped out of high school because I'm like, school is training for jobs. I don't need to train for jobs. Um, so I dropped out. I had a nice conversation with my parents where I explained to them my worldview. And they knew, they knew me pretty well at the time and knew that they could either work with me to find a middle ground or they could go against me and I would freak out. So um, they helped me come to terms with the fact that if I made that bed, I was going to have to sleep in it. And I accepted that and I dropped out and I spent the next three years playing anything for anyone that would hire me. I became a piano player. I, I actually decided, you know, I know I'm decent at guitar. I'm not so good at piano, but pianists seem to have better gigs, better opportunities. You can go accompany a church. You can go accompany music rehearsals or dance rehearsals, dance recitals. You can teach more, There's, you know, a bigger market for teaching lessons um, so the gigs tend to be better quality. I can go play private parties at rich people's houses. And there's just a lot. And especially if I learn to sing, I'm a one man band. I can keep all the money. I don't have to hire a bass player, a drummer or whatever. So it was a very pragmatic decision. Like I'm going to become a musician and a singer. And I started, I dropped out. I started practicing like eight or 10 hours a day. I was just, I was insane. I just, I practiced so much that 10 years later, I ended up getting really bad arthritis in my wrist, which is actually why I stopped playing, uh, very seriously. But uh, yeah, I managed to build a nice career for myself. I started at, you know, 16, 17 years old. By the time I was 20, I was good enough to gig steadily and professionally and kind of start rising through the ranks. Wow. And uh, I was from Houston, Texas, and I worked as a professional piano player in Houston all through my 20s. And it was so cool because I got in with this one agent. Well, it wasn't all cool. I was really poor. That part sucked. <laughs> but, but I got in with this one agency that basically booked all the really high end, they called it the society circuit. So it was really rich people's private parties. It was, if there was a gala to raise money for a charity, if the Houston ballet or the Houston symphony was having a cocktail hour before the performance, they would hire a jazz trio. It was like all this upper crust gigs in town. They paid decent, but the, the thing I didn't know at the time was about to happen was I was about to spend a lot of time around really, really successful business people. Like I, I literally played in the homes of probably 50 people with a net worth of $100 million or more. And 
at least a half a dozen billionaires that I know of. Wow. So I'm sitting there getting FaceTime with guys. Like I'll show up two hours early for the gig to, to either load my keyboard in or go find the piano and warm up and hang out. And I'm hanging out now in the homes of like Tillman Fertitta, the guy that owns the Rockets, who's on Billion Dollar Buyer now. He's got his own TV show. I'm hanging out in the homes of of Charles Butt, the, the founder of HEB Grocery Stores. Um, you know, Bob McNair, who owned the Houston, Texas Texans and founded Cogeneration Energy Company. I, I hung out at Andy Fastow's house, the CFO wow. of Enron, which is not such a, a glamorous thing now. <laughs> um, and I got to meet these people. And, and I, would, I got kind of brazen where I would be like, you know, yeah, I'm a musician, but I have an interest in business. So like, how the hell did you get so rich? And I would like ask <laughs> them these questions. And what I found is when people like that meet like a young, hungry person with good energy and enthusiasm, they're like, they're like grateful to share. Yeah. And so I started taking notes. I started built, making a study. It was kind of like an early Napoleon Hill of like, I'm going to study all these re really, really successful people because I realized what a rare thing it was that I had any sort of access to them at all. And they were having me in, in very informal settings. Like, like I played at like, you know, James Baker, former secretary of state. I played like his 80th birthday party with like him and nine of his friends. Wow. And I'm just oh, hanging out. Awesome. And, and yeah. so I'm I'm talking to these people and I started to get this itch of like, I'm going to start a business, man, because I, I love what I'm feeling, but I hate how poor I am. And I, so I'm going to do whatever I can do to maintain the create the creativity and the freedom. But like, I got to get some money. And I started uh, starting businesses one after the other failure after failure after failure all through my twenties. My tax return never showed more than 40 grand a year. Truthfully, I probably made more like 50 or 60 cause I, I got a lot of cash tips, but um I, uh, I just one after the other starting businesses. And finally, by the time I was 28, I started these two franchise restaurants. I thought I'd really graduated to like a real business. You know, I was going to get big bank loans and buy into this system and this turnkey. It had an operations manual. And what I realized is that that's not, you know, that doesn't actually mean anything. And especially in 2007, when I opened those in the Great Recession, I was, uh, I was out of business by 2008. I was 20, I guess at that time, 29 years old, had $495,000 in debt, two five-year oh. leases that I was only a year into, uh, back taxes, payroll taxes, unemployment taxes, just a world of hurt. And, and I was, in, I was a piano player. Like what the heck does a piano player do? And he's half a million dollars in debt. By the way, my, my wife was leaving me. I was depressed. I was overweight. I started to get arthritis in my wrist. So I couldn't even like go, not that you could ever do enough gigs to dig out of that much debt, but I couldn't even try. So it was a really bad time. And I discovered the world of online business and online lead generation and affiliate marketing and, and, you know, social media. It was early social media back then, 2008, 2009. And I, I spent 395 of my last dollars uh, buying this training course on how to do affiliate marketing. And I, I found that I, I do tend to be pretty good when I'm sitting in a keyboard, whether it's a computer keyboard or a piano keyboard. And I paid off $495,000 in debt in 18 months with affiliate marketing. And I've just never stopped. It's been 12 years now of just jump at leveraging one digital opportunity into the next, into the next. I, I also do some real estate investing, but I've, you know, in 12 years done about $60 million in sales and Ooh. life is a lot better now. Yeah. Better than That's being half a million debt. Would you say that there's a would you say there's a connection between between being a musician and being an entrepreneur? 
Oh my gosh. Yes. I, I actually, at one point I built a sales funnel around this once called from music to millions. And, uh, I even considered writing a book about it and I wouldn't say I've stopped considering it. I'm, I'm writing another book first, but, but yeah, very much so. And, and I would say, you know, the, the easiest way to explain it without getting too, too far down, an you know, esoteric rabbit hole is essentially, especially a jazz musician. Um, jazz musicians are, they're given a set of knowns a set of variables and a framework within which to improvise, right? Like, you know, the rhythm, you know, the harmony, you know, what key you're in, you know, some version of the chord changes, but you have permission to change them. Ideally, you know, the melody, you know, the tune, although sometimes you don't, you're just following someone else. And then you're told, don't screw up, make it cool. Keep up. Go. <laughs> Isn't that business? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you get really, really good at adapting on the fly because yeah. as a jazz musician, you know, you might be jamming out on rhythm changes in G major and you want to go here where you sharp the secondary dominant to the sixth chord, but the bass player has a different idea and he's going to do a tritone substitution. And suddenly you've got this, just because two people made different choices, there's a super weird dissonance that you can either freak out and go, ah, I hit a wrong note and throw up your hands and ruin the whole performance. Or you can just resolve. Usually you just go up a half step. And it sounds like some sort of cool, artsy choice that you made because you just kept your cool and you resolved the tension. Yeah. That's business. A lot of similarity because you can't be afraid to fail either, right? As an entrepreneur. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and as a jazz musician, you're hitting notes that according to classical theory, somebody would say that was a fail. Right. Like you fail like 700 times per performance, but you always <laughs> right. resolve out of it. You know, love it. What was your first affiliate that you work with? Do you remember? Yeah. So I actually got involved in this training platform that was amazing. And I, I had an early, see, I actually had this like counterintuitive passion for education. I dropped out of high school, not because I hated education, but because I thought I could educate myself better. And so I've been, you know, I'm an obsessive reader. I'm, I, I joke all the time. I was born a learner. I can't help it. Like I'm obsessed with education. So when I got into this marketing training platform and I looked, I was like, this has a lot of great training and a lot of great tools. I immediately saw, oh, this is what I've always wanted. It's a world where the, the training and the, the subject matter is very applicable. It's very valuable in the real world. I could learn this today and I could make money tomorrow. Not like school, where it's like I could learn this today, and then if I'm ever on Jeopardy nine years from now, hopefully I can remember the factoid, and Alex Trebek <laughs> will be proud of me, right? Like, but I'll never get paid totally. to know, you know, chapter four of Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War. Like, who cares? So I was yeah. excited. I was in a world where everything mattered, and it was all on me to learn. So I kind of, and I will confess right now, I actually don't even remember the original question. But I will just tell you that I got excited. I started learning and I started making money. Maybe now you can remind me what the original question was. It was the first, I guess, internet marketing so Yeah, the first dollar you made. Yeah, the first, the first thing I affiliated with, I was like, this training is amazing. I wonder if it has an affiliate program. And it did. And I started selling the training that I was learning from to other people because I recognized very early if I'm going to promote something that isn't actually my product that I created, it needs to at least be my passion that I believe in. And considering how much I'm loving this training, 
I should promote that because I can speak to it as a customer. Love it. And, and w- through that journey, so from that first day, um, you've obviously crushed it. I mean, within 18 months, that's incredible. What, what were you learning? Like, what were some of the, some of the first things that like those aha moments that you had? It, man, it was all around the power of language. It was like, I, I'm a reader. I, I love words. I've always been able to like talk pretty fast and string some sentences together that sounded okay. But there's such a difference between, uh, you know, creating like florid, uh, you know, language, you know, creative language and actually structuring copy that drives reader behavior to say, go here, watch this, think this, click this, now do this, now go here, now pull out your credit card, now buy a product. That you could get somebody who's 10,000 miles away, you know, they could literally be sitting on the toilet with their phone, although at the time, 2008, it wasn't so much smartphones, it was, I don't know, maybe their laptop or whatever. And you could convince them to buy something if you just mastered the power of, of influential language. That changed my life. That selling, awesome. selling through the written word, basically. Yeah, and then so, so from that, take us, take us through some next steps that that got you to. Now we have Entre, uh, Entre Institute, right? Yeah, Entre Institute. So essentially, now, I mean, Entre was my bit way of saying, okay, I've done enough, I've solved all my own problems. Now, how can I tackle a bigger challenge and serve a lot of people? Um, and, you know, it's not all like altruism. I mean, I'm a capitalist, like Entre makes money. I love it, but it was, but great businesses solve great problems or, or terrible problems, you know, depending on how you frame it. And so Entre is essentially trying to deal with what I experienced from day one. And what I guess I was just a little more willing to act out on, which is that the mainstream education system does a woeful job of equipping people to actually take advantage of the opportunities that exist in this world. I mean, Harvard, I'll give you a quick example. Harvard tried to put together a course on how to do Facebook marketing. (laughs) It took them two years to decide on a syllabus. And by the time they started creating the course, Facebook had already changed their platform twice and it was all obsolete. And none of the principles were the right principles anymore. Like traditional education just does a horrible job I mean, you guys talk to insurance agents, you talk to real estate agents, you talk to you know anybody that's an agent, right? That's like your jam. You know, I I have a running joke in my town because I have some friends that are realtors. That's like, y'all better hope that I don't decide to go into residential real estate (laughs) because I'll own this town because I know how to market on the internet better than you. Yeah. And like, why aren't schools, even trade schools? I, I taught my aunt was here earlier. She was a she's retired, but she was a radiologist for 40 years, a doctor. And I was telling her, I interviewed this guy yesterday on my podcast who has a healthcare business owner coaching program to help healthcare you know, professionals, doctors, chiropractors, et cetera, that own their own clinics, scale their businesses. And she's like, oh yeah, they don't, they don't even hint at that in, in medical school. They, they, just, they just put you out in the world on the assumption that, that the business part will take care of itself, which you find out really quickly it doesn't. Like <laughs> school doesn't teach people how to grow businesses, even right. MBAs. I've hired MBAs. They, when it comes to direct response marketing, they can't find their ass from a hole in the ground. Like it's, <laughs> right. and so Entra is out to solve that problem. Like we want to be the Harvard University of stuff you can actually go immediately make money with. The average Harvard graduate 
12 years out of Harvard, 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 let me say again, Harvard, the most prestigious academic institution in the world, 12 years out of Harvard, the average graduate's making $84,000 a year, which is not even enough to live comfortably in a major city. And I guarantee you the average Harvard graduate got that job that Harvard got them in a major city. So basically you're poor. You go to Harvard so you can be poor. And be and paying off the debt. The and yeah, you're a 400 grand in debt. 400 grand in debt, right? It's, it's insane. crazy. But Mantras, the, the, our job is to change that. That perception of the of the even the Ivy League, you know, like the Ivy League schools is it's insane. It it, it is really crazy. My wife works in biotech and yeah. she doesn't have a you know, a, an Ivy League degree or anything. She did psychology at University of Arizona. And now she's a director. And she, the people around her all have, you know, Ivy League PhDs. And so she sometimes gets in this in this spot where she's, you know, thinks that they're better. I'm like, you know more. Right. You, you got to where you got, not because of your paper, but because you hustled, you know. And- yeah, you're. You're going to you're going to be so depleted after paying off all that debt that you're actually going to need an IV to live. That's what they call it. <laughs> right. Right. The, That's great. I love the I, I love it. I love the correlation between that and um, insurance sales because, I mean, it's, it's all the same. We're still we are Internet marketing, especially nowadays where we're sending yeah. out emails. Uh, we're we're texting. We're it's all communication. And to your point, there's not much in school to teach us how to f- effectively communicate and how to push people in the direction of the, the, of the results that we want to get. What are some of the what are some of the things that like aha moments that you had in that journey of like learning um, about this direct response marketing? Yeah. So I mean. It- the first book that anybody should start with is a book called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. And it's going to explain explain the six principles of persuasion, which, you know, forgive me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I remember them. But it's, <laughs> it's authority, liking, reciprocity, social proof. Oh, come on, Jeff. It's, it's, I don't know, it's like my third interview today. And there's two more. Authority, reciprocity, liking, social proof. Um, commitment and consistency, and I'm forgetting the sixth one. But anyways, go read that book, and you realize like, oh, you can get people to do stuff. (laughs) And as a business owner, all you're trying to do is get people to do stuff. But the idea is you don't want to be manipulative. You want to be value-focused, which a lot of these principles, you know, these these principles are like magical powers. They can be used for good. They can be used for bad. Mm -hmm. So like take something like authority and reciprocity, right? People respond to authority. They've done experiments. They've done psychology experiments where they have people, you know, tell people to do bad stuff and people say, no, I don't want to do that. And then they have the same guy walk in with a clipboard and a laboratory coat and tell people this is for science, do bad stuff. And people go, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right. Because it's for science and you're (laughs) a scientist and you have authority. You know, they've done all these experiments, reciprocity, you know, do for others and they want to get, there's like this, it's like uncomfortable to receive gifts because you feel like you owe the person something, right? It's human nature to reciprocate. It's tribal. It's how we survived in small villages. So when you learn about these principles, you go, oh, how do I create reciprocity and authority in the market? Who has more, who are we conditioned to view as authorities? There's two types of people that every child views as an authority. One is their teachers. Two is people they see on TV or, or now YouTube, right? Look at the way kids worship these people on YouTube that are like doing dumb pranks, but because they see them on video, they think they're authorities, right? Yeah. So, okay, let, how do we build reciprocity and authority in the market? Let's start 
teaching on video, positioning ourselves in authority, giving a ton of value, so much that people feel like they owe us something back. Why is Jeff Lerner good at have really good conversions? And why am I able to run Facebook ads profitably in a season like the last six months when it's been a disaster for most people because of the election, because of COVID, because of Facebook uh, tightening their algorithms because they actually want to shake all the weak hands off of their platform because they have too many advertisers and a variety of other reasons. Why have I been able to profitably run Facebook ads when most other people were struggling, at least in my industry? Because I've built up authority and reciprocity. Go look at my YouTube channel. I have 400 videos where I teach you valuable stuff for free. It's a perfect example, you know? To be continued. Hey, Jason. Yes, Mr. Craig. That was another awesome episode, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, if people want to get a little bit more action and, and learn how to do uh, write 100,000 in premium yes. off of even the worst internet leads, where could they go? They can go to live.teledudes.com. Ooh, that sounds exciting. Are we going to be there? Yes. It's a weekly call that we're doing right now that will it's live and it will show you the process the entire process mm, is super awesome mm, i love it let's do it let's do it sign up right now live.teledudes.com live.teledudes.com that's live.teledudes.com hey craig there's a new community that we are starting that i cannot wait to tell everybody about it is our live texting community where you and I are going to answer people's questions and give them free content, right? Are you kidding me? We get yep. to talk to them? Yeah, which is awesome, but they have to opt in. They have to text us at 520-214-2219. That's 520-214-2219. Nice. I'm Greg, are you going to respond to these texts? I'm going to respond to them for sure, live. I'm into it too. It's going to be well, awesome. And it's, a, it's going to be our new texting community where we're going to get back to everybody that we can and drop some crazy content, free content, and free um, the calculator that you just came up with. Mm. That's right. The calling calculator. Sales material. I mean, everything for insurance agents, this is it. It's the best texting community out there for insurance agents. Well, what the heck is that number again? I can't remember it. It's 520-214-2219. That's okay. 520-214-2219. I love it. I'm going to text it right now. 520-214-2219. All right. I'll see you later, Mr. Jason. Bye, Mr. Craig. Wait, do they even listen to this on the radio anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Nice. Uh, all right.